Well, if you have a Bible with you tonight, would you turn with me there to 1 Peter? 1 Peter, toward the end of the Bible, if you're not familiar. Go to the end and take a left and you'll get to 1 Peter. We're coming to the end of a series. 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll read our last verses as we wrap up this series we've been calling Between Two Worlds, a study in this letter. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 6, Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's God's word for us this evening. First Peter is a letter that's dripping with the stench of persecution. That recurring theme is inescapable. At least it should be. Think of Peter's letters like a piano piece. Hopefully you know enough about piano to imagine this. Imagine a piano piece where there's one note that's being struck throughout. Ding, 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 ding. Other notes and chords are played, but there's this one note that's always there. I I asked my wife if she knew of an example like this. I know there are examples like this. I can't think of one. I could just think of like 80 songs where there's synthesizers going beep, 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 beep. But let's think classical instead. Now, Peter's doing something like that in 1 Peter. No matter what else he's playing, there's basically always the same note. Ding, 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 ding. It's there if we listen for it. And this is so important for us. It's so important when we read and reread and try to understand God's word. It's so easy for us to read God's word like some might read a, an encyclopedia. No one does this anymore. Now encyclopedias are online. Smart kids, when I was a kid would read through encyclopedias because they were just hungry for information. Some people read the Bible like that. They assume that you're on a topic and you read that topic. And then there's another entry coming up and then you'll read about that topic. But in 1 Peter, when a topic like witnessing comes up, as it does in chapter 2, again in chapter 3, it doesn't come up in this encyclopedic way. It's not just Christian living, 101. It's not even just a general command like Jesus gave the disciples in the Great Commission at the end of each gospel account. 
No, Peter, when he says we should be ready for a defense of the gospel, it assumes opposition. It even assumes legal defense. Or when something like the return of Christ comes up in 1 Peter, it's not just fact, it's not just teaching, it's not just systematic theology. Peter assumes that things are bad out there and that it may not get better. Peter assumes that a fix doesn't seem to be in sight, circumstantially so, but Christ seems to be in sight and his coming is drawing nearer. Or when someone like Noah comes up in 1 Peter, we saw in chapter 3, that's not just a history lesson or a Bible story lesson. Peter's whole point in chapter 3 regarding Noah is to draw parallels between Noah and his readers. Peter is telling them, like Noah, preach. Warn of judgment to come. Yes, there'll be opposition and ridicule and and disbelief, and you'll be few in number, but remain faithful like Noah. On and on we could go. Go back to that image of a piano piece with this one recurring note. If you listen to just one second of this piano piece, maybe just one one note's worth or, or one count's worth of the song, that one special note isn't, isn't noticed, is it? Sounds like it's just part of one of the chords, maybe. You've got to listen longer to hear the ding, 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 ding keep happening. And with God's word, too, we have to zoom out and see what's going on, why he talked about this or that. Of course, not all books of the Bible are as tightly focused as First Peter. So it would be possible to say, here's why Paul wrote Colossians, and then... Everything becomes about this problem that Paul was trying to fix, and, and you could overdo it, for sure. But I think when it comes to First Peter, my tendency, personally speaking, has been, if anything, to underplay or downplay the repetition, to not hear the ding, 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 ding in every chord that Peter's playing. It happened again in the last couple of days as I was studying our passage for tonight. I thought at first, I'll call this message closing comments or final words or Christian basics. A lot of Christian basics in there. Maybe essential ingredients or something like that. It felt to me a bit like a note you leave for the house sitter. Water the flowers. Trash day's Tuesday. Here's the key. Or use the garage door opener. The dog eats one scoop twice a day. It felt like Peter was coming to the end of his letter and he had several, by the ways, FYIs, some some leftovers off the top of his head, some oh yeahs to include before he signed off. But as I read Peter's words more and more, I started to hear that familiar ding, 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 ding. And in full disclosure, I winced. I thought... Ah, let's not go there with the sermons. The last one of the series, we've already talked about persecution plenty. We live in different times than Peter did. Yeah, we might be heading there, but, but still the U.S. and the 21st century, we're still miles away from anything like first century Rome. Christians in America are so mildly persecuted today by comparison that You know, other threats and other needs and other sins and temptations are more uniquely pressing upon us 
in 21st century America today, then it just doesn't feel right to talk about persecution again. But then I repented and decided to trust God's word and to tell you what it says. I was also reminded that we need to hear the repetition of God's word and the repetitious note, that ding again here. You see, we need, even if it's a note of persecution, we need God's word to speak to us as it speaks. I mean, opposition is here. We've talked about that in this series. We've talked about how the the church at various times and various circumstances has not always handled itself well when it's being squeezed. We have to be prepared for this. It, It may get worse in our country We may more and more be disenfranchised or squeezed out or persecuted in various ways. And we shouldn't think it's a surprising thing because that's what Peter told these Christians. And we should also note that whatever Peter says to persecuted Christians about how to live and how to think and what to do in persecuting times, it also applies to any kind of suffering we could equally apply it to any situation of trial because if it's this advice for that bad of a situation then the same advice works for our lighter situation our lighter trial so here we go persecution take four take five whatever it is go back to chapter four verse 12 I already referred to it a bit in saying the fiery trial. That's where it comes from. 4.12 actually starts this last section of the book of 1 Peter. Our passage at the end really falls under this heading where Peter begins, Beloved, when he addresses people, it's a heading of sorts. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then he gives some so's. They're not explicit in the text, but really what he's doing after here is saying, so here's what you do. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial. Instead, verse 13, rejoice in the Christ-likeness of that suffering. Or at the end of chapter 4, essentially what he says there is, leave room for the judgment of God that will come. You can trust final judgment to him. Or as you go into chapter 5, The fiery trial is coming upon you. So, elders, shepherd the flock. And shepherd the flock like you care. And like it's it's Jesus' flock and and like he's coming back. And then chapter 5, verse 5. So, church, put yourself under your shepherd's lead. And verse 5. So, all of you, be humble toward each other. And so, really, now we come to a final so. The fiery trial is coming upon you. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Instead, I think Peter gives us four things, four more tools from the toolbox of the fiery trial. First, he tells us be humble enough to trust God. Be humble enough to trust God. Verses 6 and 7 Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humility and trust go together in this passage. 
Just notice grammatically, verses 6 and 7 go together. It's the same sentence. Verse 7 doesn't begin a new command. Notice the I-N-G ending with that first word of verse 7. Casting, right? This is part of how you be humble. Be humble, verse 6, dot, dot, dot. Casting all your anxieties on him. Verses 6 and 7 are dealing with the same thing. And, of course, it's the ding, 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 ding of this song. You see, in verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That phrase, the mighty hand of God, that's a phrase used repeatedly in the book of Exodus about God's powerful working in Egypt to rescue his people from the tyranny and slavery of Pharaoh. The Israelites were in a situation of threat, of trouble. As it concerned Pharaoh and his army, as they looked back there, it's threat, it's trouble. But God's mighty hand was at work in power and in glory to redeem his people. And much of the cataclysm that's going on all around them is part of their rescue, part of their redemption. It's part of God's show, right? He was redeeming them out of opposition, wasn't he? So that phrase, mighty hand of God, should conjure up thoughts of trouble and rescue, persecution and protection. Humble yourself by placing yourself under the mighty hand of God, that protective, redeeming hand that's in troublesome times. You're to put yourself in his hand even while he rides through the storm. Be humble enough to do that. It's according to his will, Peter has said twice, that our suffering has come. Humble yourself, why? So that at the, pri- at the proper time, he may exalt you. Though now lowly in society, though now despised by your former friends or, or family members, in due time you will be exalted. The proper time, the due time, when Jesus comes back. I mean, finally, that's when it happens. That's, you, you may have some ups and downs. You may have temporary relief here or there. But generally speaking, it's suffering now Humble now, lowly now, exaltation later when Christ returns. Humble yourself for that reason. Humble yourself how? Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. Now what's that connection between humility and trust? Or humility and not having anxiety? What's Peter getting at here? Well, think of the nature of pride. C.J. Mahaney writes, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. You see, dependence is part of C.J. Mahaney's definition of pride. So when we're worried or anxious, we're implying 
not maybe even consciously, but we're, we're implying that God lacks the power to fix the situation or the desire to fix the situation or, or the goodness, the wisdom to know what to do, the presence to be there and to care. We're saying something's not right here because if I were at the controls, I'd turn the ship the other way, I'd hit the brakes here, I'd hit the gas pedal and go. And God doesn't seem to know or doesn't seem to care, doesn't seem to have the ability to take care of things. Bearing burdens ourselves implies we can take better care of our burdens than he can. It's essentially saying to the Lord, I got it, I got it. I get, no one bears a burden quite like I do. I can't fix it, I know, but I can worry. And that makes me feel better. But it doesn't, does it? It doesn't. We cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for us. And he cares for us infinitely better than we ever could possibly care for ourselves even if we were at the controls, even if we had the power to affect change, stop bad things, do different things. So cast all your cares on him. Whether that's the care of persecution, no doubt that's what Peter had in mind when he said cast all of your anxieties on him. There's the ding, 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 ding going on in verse 7. But it applies equally, as Scripture says elsewhere, it applies equally to any kind of anxiety, anxiety and worry and fear and envy and doubt. Give it to him. He cares for you, and he will do you good. As we sing in Amazing Grace, that great old hymn, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Secondly, Peter tells us to be smart about the spiritual realm. Be smart about the spiritual realm. In verses 8 and 9, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Once again, we can't miss the ding, 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 ding going on. You may love this verse. Maybe you memorized this verse like I did in early days of your Christian life. I memorized it my first year of college. First Peter 5, 8. The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That imagery is powerful and it captures our imagination. And it's easy to take that verse and to, to memorize it and put it in our pockets and quote it often or from time to time. But forget the message of First Peter, the ding, ding, ding. You see, this isn't a guitar solo in the middle of the song. It's the same melodic ding going on here. Satan stands behind all the persecution. Satan is behind the fiery trial. Oh, sure, humanly speaking, there's Nero. Sure, humanly speaking, there's that odd mix of first century Roman culture where you have idolatry and the economy, buying and selling and trading, sexuality, emperor worship, and nationalism all coming together in concert against Christians to squeeze them out. 
and to persecute them. It puts Christians on the outside. They're now enemies of the state because of weird things in the culture, in the nation, in the economy, in the politics of first century Rome. All kinds of human explanations for it all, but Satan stands behind it all somehow. And not just generally as a spirit or something. He's active. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But... It's in concert with the word, uh, sorry, the world and the flesh. You've heard that phrase before, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All these are a complex web working together in a mysterious but true way. And this concept is all over God's word. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. When Peter said he wouldn't be going to the cross, you won't go to the cross, Lord. Not you. Jesus said, get behind me. Not Peter, not Dork. Satan. Satan was somehow behind that. It's not just you're acting satanically. Or that's really bad, Peter. He's saying Satan's somehow involved in this. Remember when Jesus foretold Peter's denials? And he said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. He wants to sift you. He's behind your denials. In Job chapter 1, God said to Satan, Hey, where, where, where'd you come from? As Satan presents himself. Satan answers, I was going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. And then God says, Well, have you considered my servant Job? So apparently Satan's roaming the earth, going to and fro on the earth, was this lion-like prowl. Seeking whom he may devour, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. We also see in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul saying that he wanted to come to the Thessalonian church, but Satan hindered us. Now what's that mean? Satan appeared, held them back. What, what does he mean? Satan hindered us. We started having demonic dreams and Satan was doing a spooky voice and so we got scared we didn't come. No, Satan hindered us likely through persecution. We couldn't come because we were locked up. We couldn't come because you can't go that way. They'll kill you. We got Satan's behind it. And one more, Revelation 2, verse 10. There the Lord Jesus tells one of those churches in Asia Minor, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. The devil's about to throw you into prison? He's going to show up, pitchfork, horns, throw you into prison? No. People are going to throw you into prison, but Satan's behind it, and you can just draw a straight line. Satan's behind whatever these Christians to whom Peter writes are facing. Satan attacks internally through temptation, a temptation to doubt, to sin, to give up. He is a tempter. And Satan attacks externally through opposition and persecution. So with that in mind, notice what Peter says to do. The problem? The devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Verse 8 tells us, be sober-minded, be serious, be awake, be watchful, he says. And then in verse 9, he says, resist him firm in your faith. Resist 
is the most frequent command related to spiritual warfare in the Bible. In James 4, we're told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In Ephesians 6, that great armor of God passage, we're told there's a battle, it's a spiritual one. We're told, resist. And then we're told, put on the whole armor of God. So in 1 Peter 5, too, we're told, resist, resist temptation, resist the devil, resist to give up, resist to doubt, resist to worry, resist to fight back the opposition when persecuted. And part of that resisting is firm in the faith, standing firm in the faith, keep the gospel, keep it before your eyes, lock on to it. Notice that in these key passages on spiritual warfare, there's nothing said about talking to the devil or the demons. You see, we fight our spiritual battle like this, knowing that the opposition is real, not by pretending it isn't there. We certainly shouldn't think that demons never scare people or they never do what we might think of as spooky things. But Peter's point is that the devil is actually behind more bushes than you think. You see, he says we shouldn't be surprised by the opposition. Chapter 4, verse 12. Notice in chapter 5, verse 9, he basically says, don't be surprised again here. He says, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You shouldn't be surprised by satanic opposition. That kind of suffering, and he means suffering of persecution here, not a new kind of suffering, not demonic dreams necessarily. Satan may at times work like that. Demons may at times do paranormal activity that's unusual and resembles something that you've seen in a scary movie. But the the verse after the devil's prowling and seeking devour tells us that the same kind of suffering is being experienced by the church all over the place. It's opposition, it's persecution, it's slander, it's accusation. It's the same note, not a different one. The devil is actually behind more bushes than you think. He's not just in the stuff that resembles the exorcist. The, the devil's behind bad governments. He's behind jokes about Christians behind sneers he's behind families who cut off Christians Christian kids all these things the world the flesh the devil they all work against God and his people be aware be awake be watchful do not be surprised resist him stand firm in your faith as Martin Luther taught us to sing Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word from Jesus will fell him. That word above all earthly powers No thanks to to them, those demons, it abides. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sides. So let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth 
abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The devil is real. He's busy. He's intent to harm, but we know the final outcome. Thirdly, be confident in the gospel to the end. Be confident in the gospel to the end. Verse 10 says, after you have suffered for a little while. It's assumed, after you have suffered. Again, the ding, ding, ding. After you have suffered. He's going to give comfort in the rest of it, but he begins this verse with this ding of the suffering and persecution. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the one who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Think of the manifold gospel riches that we have in Jesus that this letter has so wonderfully rehearsed and unpacked for us. Think of back in chapter 1, the themes of an incorruptible inheritance and adoption, born again. The judge is our father. We can set our hope fully on the grace that's to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We love him. We don't yet see him, but we love him. And we rejoice in him with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Even when trials come, we can rejoice in trials because they're purifying us. They're showing forth our faith. They're preparing us for heaven. Again and again and again, Peter has unpacked gospel riches. And here he just hints at them again. The God of all grace. That one? He called you to his eternal glory. In Christ, in all that he did, in Jesus' blood and righteousness, because the righteous suffered for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And if he called us like this, and if it's in Christ like it is, then he will himself restore us fully, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. And then Peter exclaims after giving this praise and celebrating this grace, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 12, he summarizes really basically the whole letter. He says in verse 12, I've written briefly to you. Here's what I aim to do. Two things really. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And stand firm in it. So here we take this away from what Peter says. We should be confident in the gospel until the end. We should rehearse the gospel again and again. We should, like a jewel, hold it up and in, in marvel at its many facets. We should stare, we should gaze, we should meditate, we should grow in our understanding of what Jesus did. We should, we should celebrate the rich language and in, in complexity through which the Bible reveals God's grace in the infinite benefits that are ours in Christ. We should drink down that milk, that spiritual milk of the word, and be nourished by it. Confident in the gospel of the very end, confident in the God of the gospel who will take you to the end. If he called you, he'll establish you, he'll keep you, he'll restore you, he will bring you bodily to himself. And lastly, 
Fourth, be warm in your love for each other. Peter says be warm in your love for each other. Well, at least that's the summary of what he says in the last few verses. The beginning of verse 12, I skipped the beginning. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written. Silvanus was basically the scribe. Peter's verbalizing this letter to Silvanus. And Peter puts that down in honesty. And he also puts it down so that he can thank Silvanus in a roundabout way. He can recognize his labor of love. By Silvanus, this has been written, he's a faithful brother as I regard him. In verse 12, he talks about someone unidentified, a female, who's at Babylon. Why Babylon? Uh, she's in Rome. Rome is now so against Christians. It's, again, this thing of God's people living in a foreign land. They're people between two worlds. It's now and not yet. They're in Babylon, metaphorically speaking. She who's in Babylon, she says hi. She sends you, his, your, she sends you greetings. So does Mark, the apostle, my son. Verse 14, he says, Greet one another with the kiss of love. And peace be all. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. What he means to tell us here, or show us by example anyway, is that we need each other. That we're not in this thing alone. We notice each other. We should, shouldn't we? We should notice each other. That's what Peter does here. He notices who's with him and where there's a connection. And he simply says, she says hi. He sends his love. We should commend each other. We should affirm one another as Peter models for us. We should celebrate these gospel partnerships. That's really what these are, right? This guy's writing down Bible for Peter. Mark is his number two, his right-hand man. There's some unknown girl who's, who's in Babylon, but she's chosen. And she says hi. She loves the saints. She loves the church. So greet one another. Be thankful for each other. Not just thankful, but warm in your love for each other. We, we may not greet people today with a holy kiss, but we do whatever is the equivalent, right? Handshake, or guys do a handshake and a half hug or something. But we, we, we look for ways to celebrate what, what we are in Christ, what we share in Christ. So this is family. We wish for and pray for the peace for all who are in Christ. And don't forget the ding, 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 ding again here in this last section, these last few words of Peter. Be warm in your love for each other because it's hard out there. The mission is great, but it's not easy. We serve a Lord who was suffered, one who was crucified. The guy who wrote this a year or two later was crucified himself. The devil's a roaring lion, and he still is. He is intent on our destruction. So we care for each other, right? The devil's against you. I'm not against you. Jesus died for you. So I love you. And I pray for you. And together in, in fellowship, we declare the true grace of God to each other again and again in a variety of ways. And we exhort each other, stand firm in it. And we keep holding each other up. 